Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Galatians 5. That's where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, good morning. My name is uh, Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. So glad to have you uh, with us. And before I jump into our text for this morning, uh, let, me, let me pray for our time. Father, your word says that uh, your word is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our, our path. So we open your scriptures to have you light the way that we would live a life that is worthy of our calling of the name of Jesus. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it so hard to do good to everyone we meet? That's what Paul says here as, as he ends the book of Galatians. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, assuming we will grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Essentially, Paul says to us, do good to everyone because you won't want to. You'll want to give up in the process. And and those of us who have live long enough, we, we feel the, the weight of those words. Why is it that we've unleashed our anger when we didn't want to? Why is it that we said things we wish we could take back? Why, why can't we just be free of certain people, commitments, relationships? We grow weary of doing good. And Paul says, don't. So why is it so hard to do good to everyone? Well, there's two reasons. You and other people. And we're going to talk about both this morning. Why who you are makes it difficult to do good, and me too, to, to do good to, uh, to everyone, and why other people make it hard to do good to them. So first, us. What's in me, what's in, in you that makes it difficult for us to do good to everyone and not give up? So we're, we're finishing our series on Galatians this morning. So we've spent several weeks now uh, talking through what it is, what the gospel is, and, and what it means. And here in the last passage, Paul begins to, to be very explicit about what the gospel should look like as we live among other people. What does the gospel mean as, as I inhabit this world for other people? So the gospel, it, it empowers us to do good to everyone without giving up. At least it should. So how does that work? What does that look like? Well, verse 26 is an interesting verse, and it, and it says two things about the gospel. Or it says two things we're to do, and the gospel does in us. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So two ways the gospel empowers us to do good. First, the gospel humbles us. Paul says, don't become conceited, provoking one another. Because conceited people 
provoke other people. To be conceited is, as the definition of the Greek word here says, is someone who is able or who tries to establish an unfounded opinion, especially of themselves. Which is what Paul gets to in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, when you think you are more than what you actually are, the necessary conclusion is provoking other people. That's, we've talked a lot about this throughout the series, but this is what, what makes religion and church so difficult for people if they're non-Christians trying to come in or if uh, they're Christians seeking for a, a reconnection to God. Is oftentimes the church is full of people who live as if they think they're going to heaven because of their good works and they're so much better than those terrible people out there that are destroying our world and culture. We're the good people keeping the bad people out. And sometimes the bad people get in and we're like, get back out. Conceited people provoke because when you're, you're superior to other people, there's only one posture and that is to look down on them. One of my favorite moments in Jesus' life is when he goes to a, a man's house named Simon and uh, Simon was uh, most likely a religious leader and there were a lot of religious leaders at this meeting, Pharisees. And they're eating dinner together. In the middle of dinner, a, a woman barges in and begins to, uh, to clean Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. Now, in our day, that would be weird for someone to come in and start rubbing your feet at the middle of dinner. It actually wasn't strange then because uh, everyone wore sandals in that day. The good days, as we, I might call them for you Chaco fans out there or those who love to wear sandals, would wear them year-round. Some of us have. It was a good day. Sandals, that's all they wore. The, the trouble with this is there were, there were no sewer systems, uh, indoor plumbing in that day, which meant the, the stuff just kind of ran onto the streets. And so when you would just go walking uh, down the street in the average day, your, your feet got pretty disgusting. All kinds of things on them. I mean, feet are disgusting today. And we have like socks and pedicures. And I still don't want to see your feet. Imagine then what feet were like. They were very, very disgusting. And so a, a basic act of hospitality often was when you went to someone's house for dinner, they'd wash your feet. Some of it surely self-interested because they didn't want to get your nasty feet all over their house. But some of it was service. Let me clean your feet. So this would not be a surprising act that the woman would come in and clean Jesus' feet. What is surprising is... Why didn't Simon wash Jesus' feet? It's his house. Jesus came in. Why didn't, why didn't Simon wash Jesus' feet? Well, Simon, he sees this going on and he has a thought to himself, which is if Jesus knew who this woman was, he would not let her touch him. So for Simon, the, the human pecking order is very clear. Simon is here. The woman is here. Jesus, because he's a prophet, he knows what Simon is thinking, and he says to Simon, you didn't give me the basic hospitality when I came in, yet this woman has not stopped uh, washing my feet since she came in. So it's, it's not just that Simon put the pecking order, Simon here, the woman here, but it was Simon here, Jesus, son of God, somewhere in here, then the woman. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. This guy, 
his job is to read the Bible and to know God. God comes into his house and Simon is too good to wash his feet. The Son of God is beneath Simon. And I know and have encountered some religious people through the years who would see themselves as superior to the Son of God by the way they treat and speak and act towards other people. See, Simon refused Jesus' hospitality because he was conceited. Thought himself superior to the Son of God. Simon thought the woman was beneath him. And once you start putting some people beneath you, a whole lot of people end up beneath you. And Jesus even ended up beneath Simon. So who's beneath you? Is it people who are pro-choice? Is it people who have the wrong religion? Is it the family member who keeps messing up their life with the, the poor decisions? Who's, who's beneath you? Because the gospel likens you and I to someone who has been forgiven a $100 billion debt. He tells this amazing story. He's like this guy, he owed a king $100 billion. The king said, you know what, I'll forgive you. Just forget about it. Um, your debt's paid. And so the guy goes off, and then he finds another guy who owes him 100 bucks, and he says, pay me today, or you're going to prison. The guy's like, I can't pay you. So the man says, you're going to, you're going to prison, and he puts him in prison. $100 billion forgiven, but can't forgive $100. I mean, just, just imagine uh, someone who, uh, dirt poor, then suddenly just is given a gift of $100 billion. So they buy the most gaudy clothes they can, you can imagine. They start driving a Rolls Royce. And then they start walking around telling you how to manage your money. Hey, someday you could be like me. This is the company you need to invest in. This is what you need to do with your money. You're probably not working hard enough. And the thought would just be, like, dude, you, you got everything free. Don't tell me what to do. And yet how many Christians are like that guy spiritually? Everything we have was given free. We have far more than $100 billion in spiritual wealth, the Son of God given to us, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And yet we walk around as if I earned this. This is mine. See, the gospel makes conceit impossible if you believe it. You cannot look down on another person if you've been given what we've been given in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. As Dan Allender writes in Bold Love, the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. We've been trying to say this for 10 weeks in Galatians. The cost for, recipient, the cost for the recipient of God's grace is nothing. And no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. I may like an occasional free gift, but I cannot bear the loss of pride and swagger that occurs when I give my life and nothing is required. Grace is free, and that is disturbing. The gospel is disturbing. Because I'm walking around with so much I do not deserve. So much I, I do not deserve to own. So much I never earned. So how could I ever become conceited? Provoking others because I think myself superior to them. And the answer is I become that way when I stop believing the gospel. And start thinking I have paid my way into the house 
of God. So we weary in doing good because we become conceited. We start thinking, I earned this. I don't need to do good to that person because I'm better than them. Paul says, don't become conceited after he spent five weeks or five uh, chapters talking about the gospel. So the gospel humbles us. Some of us, we, we are hum- we're humbled already. And so the gospel also, it lifts us up. That we grow weary because we, we envy. So Paul says, uh, do not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. That envy is to look at other people and to say, they have what I don't have. Right? I, I don't have what they have. I, I, don't, I don't come with much. Henry Nouwen uh, writes, writes this about an experience that he had with uh, a spiritual leader in his, his life that gets at this feeling, what Paul's speaking to. Uh, at 10 a.m., Henry Nouwen writes, at 10 a.m., I had my weekly meeting with John Eudis, a spiritual leader in his life. I asked him about my fatigue, which keeps plaguing me every time I become involved with people. John Eudis said, I put too much energy into any encounter as if I have to prove each time anew that I am worth being with. You put your own identity at stake, he said, and every time you start from scratch. Here's what he means. So I, I, like I just moved here, uh, so a lot of you, you don't know me, and, and it, it requires me starting with a lot of new relationships. And it can be, be easy for me in every conversation to want to, in that conversation, prove to you, hey, I'm a good pastor, I can preach. Please don't fire me. <laughs> That's an enormous weight. And, and, and we do this in many ways, right? It's, it's to someone we want to love us back. Please love, love me back. Please give me what I need. And, and that means, and now one speaks to this, that means we put our identity at stake in each encounter, and that's exhausting. But more than that, it means... In that encounter, that encounter is more about me than that person. And I can't do good to another person if the encounter is more about me and what I need from them than about me giving myself away. And so the gospel makes clear that that Jesus doesn't just have to die for us. He also, he wants to die. He loves us. He willingly gives his life for us. As he says in John's gospel, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I'm going to the cross. This is my choice. This is not an accident. I give my life away. It's why Paul uh, meditates on this in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so you and I can walk into every encounter with the security of knowing the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Which humbles me. It keeps me from looking at another person and thinking, man, I'm so much better than them. But it also lifts me in the sense of I'm loved by God and therefore I have something good to give to this person. It keeps us from being too low being too high. And the reality is we go back and forth between that our entire lives from seasons of arrogance and pride for seasons of despair where we think we have nothing. And the gospel is always bringing us into that healthy middle where we can love other people for their own good and not for what we need from them. 
So when we believe the gospel, it protects us from conceit, protects us from thinking we're better than other people, and protects us from thinking we have nothing to give or we're unworthy. So we got to sort that out in our own hearts. But then once we get it sorted out, then we have to go to other people. And other people make it hard to do good to other people. And so Paul goes right there in verse 1 of chapter 6. Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. So Paul assumes other people are going to sin against you. And I make this personal guarantee to you this morning. Your life will be full of other people sinning against you. The question is, what do we do when that happens? And Paul gives us a pretty, a pretty powerful response. And he says two things. First, we must be gentle. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I want to be clear. Paul's not endorsing weakness. Gentleness does not mean weakness. It actually requires enormous courage to confront someone when they are, are operating as less than, them be, than their best selves. When they're sinning, it takes enormous courage to go and speak about what you've experienced. But we do so with gentleness. Why? Well, one reason is, is gentleness is a hallmark Christian virtue. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle. And if we are to his disciples set to become like him, we are to become gentle people. It's a hallmark Christian virtue. And then in, in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is listening out, what are the requirements of Christian leadership? To be a leader in the church. Paul writes, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And skip a verse. They must be not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. To be a leader in the church, Paul says, you must be a gentle person. In Galatians 5, where we were last week, it's a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit invading your life produces gentleness. Ephesians 4, Paul says, I want you uh, Christians in Ephesus to live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus. Jesus called you to himself, so you should have a life that's worthy of what you've been called to. And what's one of the qualities of a worthy life that's been called to Jesus? Gentleness. Gentleness is a hallmark Christian virtue, but, but also gentleness makes restoration more likely. Right? How many of us have been confronted with sin by someone yelling at us or being angry with us, and the response was, you think you can yell? Get angry? Watch this. And it does no good. Versus how many of us have been in a room and someone sat down across from us and they, they asked a, a gentle, piercing question and your, your soul just got exposed and you knew. You're caught in a transgression. 
And think of it like this. I had a pastor mentor uh, down in, in Bloomington, Indiana, when I was in campus ministry. And he said, you know, whenever you're going into a hard conversation, just think you've got a baseball in your hands. And there's only three ways you can deliver that ball to that person. One is you can kind of roll it under the table and see if they, you know, catch wind. See if they, they know what you're talking about. Be very passive. Don't be direct. And that's not helpful. Two, you can, uh, you can take a fastball right to the face. Then they'll know what you're talking about. It'll wake them up. So, or you can, just, you can just hand them the ball. And Paul's saying when you, when you find a brother, a sister, a family member, a coworker, living something that's, that's damaging or wounding to you, just hand them, hand them the ball. Approach them in a spirit of gentleness. So gentleness makes restoration more likely. And that's our goal. It's not just to, to shame them, which is often why we yell and confront people with sin, right? It's just to shame them and make them feel the same pain we felt. But that's not the aim, Paul says, in confronting sin. The aim, as he makes clear, is to restore them. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. So we must be gentle and we must keep our goal restoration. At the word restoration there, it's, it's healing, it's mending. And again, I, I want to be clear, that's not keeping the peace. That's not, what you did is not that big of a deal, but I kind of want to let you know about, no, it's actually restoration, healing. Sometimes, and those of you who are, are doctors, nurses could attest to this, sometimes to, to break a bone, you got to break it further. Sometimes to, uh, to heal someone, you have to do surgery, which requires opening up their body in very painful ways. So restoration isn't about avoiding or lessening the issue, the, but the aim is the good of the other person, the other person being restored to the person God wants them to be. Again, Dan Allender in his book, Bold Love, I love the way he puts this. Bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view, willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. As I say, I think this is why Paul says, don't become weary in doing good, because what I just read is enormously difficult. Depending on the level of sin someone has sinned against you, to move into their life and to confront what's, what's in their life requires setting aside your own agenda first. It can't be about you and, and shaming them or making them feel what you have felt. Rather, you go with their well-being in view, which will be an aroma of life to some, because you provide a way forward to the way of Jesus, but it will be an aroma of death to others. Your presence in confrontation of their sin because they do not want to repent will be an aroma of death. And both are very difficult to do. To approach someone with their well-being in mind, with their good in mind, with restoration as the goal. So Christians, this should work out in two levels. And I've been speaking primarily on the individual level as you go about your life with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with the people you live your life alongside. It's hard to do good to everyone. 
So when you find someone who is caught in sin that makes doing good difficult, approach them in a spirit of gentleness with their restoration in mind. So it works on the individual level, but now I want to I finish by speaking that this also works on the societal level. And so I want to end uh, our time together this morning by addressing uh, this past Friday in the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I want to begin with a little bit of, of history. Uh, that Christians, from the beginning of the church, have ab- opposed the practice of abortion. And while I've heard many people say through the years, well, Jesus never addressed the issue. He never spoke about it, the Gospels. And that is, that is true, but also not quite fair because there's a lot of things Jesus didn't address. He lived in a culture that would have assumed the practice was not a practice someone who loved God could engage in. So that's probably why he didn't speak to it. But it's true, Jesus did not address it. But the moment the church began to move out of the Jewish culture that would have universally um, been against the practice of abortion, the moment the church started moving further into Roman culture, it immediately addressed the practice of abortion. And both the writing, the Didache, and the letter to Barnabas, two early Christian writings written around 100 AD to 130 AD, both mention abortion and say it is something that Christians cannot practice. It's not open or available to the church. In Roman uh, culture went even further. There was another practice called exposure, which is if you brought a child into to birth and you decided you didn't want that child, you would take it out into the wilderness and leave it there and abandon it, where two things would typically happen. Most of the time, the child would um, die exposed to the elements, but then sometimes people would come, around, come along and take the child for themselves, raise it, and then sell it into slavery to make a profit off of it. And as far as we know, only Jewish and Christian people condemned that practice. Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, writes, So as far as we know, the only wide-scale criticism of this practice, exposure, and the only collective refusal to engage in infant exposure in the first three centuries A.D. was among Jews and early Christians. The Christians would actually go and adopt those children, go to the place where kids were exposed, and then bring those children into their homes. And that's how, Larry Hurtado says, Christians destroyed the Roman gods, overcame Roman culture, because over time, Roman culture was so overwhelmed with the love they saw Christians express, they abandoned the practice of exposure and began to have more of a culture of life. So, I want to end my time by, by asking, so what, what, what is our response as Christians to this past Friday? And I've got three thoughts, then I'm in my seat. First, Christians, we should not expect people who do not follow Jesus to see abortion in the same way as people who follow Jesus. And so I fully expect and perhaps even hope that there are people in this room who are pro-choice, who, who have had an abortion. I'm glad you're here, hearing about the incredible person, Jesus Christ. And I understand my position and the church's position does not make sense to you. And I can't unpack why Christians have, from the beginning of, of church history, always had one position on abortion, which is to not practice it. But I would love to unpack that for you over a cup of coffee or lunch Sometime. 
So Christians, we, we should not expect people who don't follow Jesus to have the same theology as people who follow Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised at that. And we should respond to that, as Paul says, the spirit of gentleness. And our aim should be restoration, not to win culture wars. Because wars kill people. Jesus is not invested in that outcome. So first, I, I, I do not, we should not expect people to share our theology on this. Second response for Christians is we should be grateful for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That the question, what does a, what, when does a human being get human rights, is an incredibly important question. When does a human being get human rights? And every culture throughout all history has picked a segment of the population they've deemed not human and not worthy of rights. For us, for the last 50 years, the unborn have been in that category and continue to be in that category in most states in our country. It's why the Bible speaks at length that people who love God are not to dehumanize and mistreat. And so special mention of the foreigner those with different races and ethnicities, the immigrant and sojourner, and the unborn in various ways, and especially in the early church, are mentioned as deserving special protection from the people of God because those are the people most likely to be dehumanized and mistreated by society. And so any law that, that, that otherizes certain human beings or human life is an injustice. And when those laws are overturned, we give gratitude to God. So I'm grateful. But third and finally, uh, church, our, our work in this end is just beginning. Because our aim, as I said, is not to win war, a culture war. Changing laws will do very little to the practice of abortion in our country until there is a culture of life pervading our country. Our aim is to restore people back to who God made them to be, which is people who see every human being as made in his image and refuse to dehumanize anyone. That is our goal, and that's a lofty goal. Because a culture or a person that dehumanizes other human life is not healthy. It's not good. That we don't want just a law passed. We want restoration. And how did the early church do this, right? How did they overcome a Roman culture that had every bit a dehumanizing ethic of life that our culture has had? How did they overcome the church? Was they presented an alternative. Instead of exposing infants, they adopted them. Instead of aborting children, they brought them into their families, into the churches. They only overcame the Roman culture of death through enormous personal financial, emotional, social costs to themselves. It's the only way it happened. The church adopted, gave, were generous, created hospitals, orphanages, did all of that work. And Roman culture got to a place of, you know, this, this practice, this exposure, this dehumanizing practice, this is ugly, right? The gladiatorial games, all of the Roman culture that just trampled on all kinds of human life. They looked at the church and said, that that's beautiful. And change happened through a long sacrificial process of the church. And so for me, it was very strange uh, coming back from Johnny and Friends on Friday and 
and seeing the news that Roe v. Wade had overturned. Because I had just spent a week with Christians and families who devote their lives to serving people with special needs. People who often, we're told, are the ones who need to be aborted. Christians giving significant time and finances. It's, It's one of the most beautiful weeks I've ever been a part of. And it's so much better than what I've witnessed this week is our culture wants to defend what has always been true of human beings, that some people get to humanize so that we can have what we want. And so, Jesus came to save us spiritually hopeless cases, which makes no sense. Unless you understand Jesus saw no human life as expendable. So he gave himself for it. He loved each human life and he gave himself up for it. And you and I are to do the same. Or the gospel will not be believable to a world who thinks all we want is to win a culture war and not point to a beautiful ethic of life. So here's how we're going we're gonna to end our, our time. We have uh, communion tables up front. There's one up in the balcony. We're going to do communion a little bit differently this morning. Um, instead of having servers up front, uh, I'm actually going to ask you just come down uh, by yourself or, or maybe with your spouse, with a close friend if, if you're, you're there. And I, met, I want you to, to take your time and to meditate on, on two thoughts before you come. First, to see whether you believe in Jesus or not. He saw your life as so valuable. His body was broken. His blood was shed to restore you. He's come to you, the Son of God, in the spirit of gentleness, giving his life on a cross to make you right. Just, just sit in the joy of that if you're a Christian for a few minutes. And then, as you, as you prepare to make your way down the table, the, the second thing I want to meditate on you, or meditate on you, is what cost are you willing to give to overturn a culture of dehumanization in our world today? Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, love me, get saved, get beamed up to heaven one day. No, we follow him and his way. So none of us should leave this week or the overturning of this case not asking, where does my money need to go? Where does my time need to go? How does my life need to begin to overturn not a law, but an ethic, a vision of life? Because the, the life Jesus has of no expendable human life is not something we can just say. We have to make it believable. We have to show it as the early church did. And so ask God, what... What do you need from me? What cost could I pay? And then as you, as you come to the table, come not in a spirit of, that's what earns your salvation, it doesn't, but come to receive his life so that you can go and be his life to a world of death. Let me pray. Father, it is an enormous absurdity that the Son of God gave his life for us. We were spiritually helpless, totally expendable, could have been forgotten, and yet the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've known His grace, full of grace, full of mercy, full of truth. So Father, instill that into us deeply now so that when we walk out the doors this morning, we can move into a world that finds so much expendable and say, not true, Jesus has a different way, and it is so beautiful. Father, help us to live it. It is so difficult to live it. It is so easy to, do weir- to weary out in doing good. May this meal keep us strong.
for the good you have done to us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net. 